Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. Well, on the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Dr. Basil Bonner, Chief Medical Officer of the Cape Argus Pick and Pay Cycle Tour, about keeping yourself healthy right up to the finish line. Teresa Harris, Pick and Pay Dietitian, will be on the line and we'll be talking about the updated sports nutrition guidelines and what you should be doing to get yourself ready for the 10th of March. Dr. Johan Lochner is a periodontist and president of the South African Society for Periodontics. Now, he'll be joining us a little later to tell us about bad breath, not only being the ultimate turnoff, but the fact that there's a strong association between gum disease and erectile dysfunction. Dietitian Annalise Smith will be joining us and we'll be chatting about essential facts everyone should know about omega-3 fatty acids. And just a reminder that if you need any information about the show this evening, because after the show I list all the contact details, all the information you would have heard on the show, and that will be on the Facebook page, so you can have a look at that. It's Health Matters on SAFM. But if you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Affairs will now be issuing unabridged birth certificates only. I'm pleased to announce that from the 4th of March 2013, the Department of Home Affairs will end the practice of issuing abridged birth certificates and will only issue unabridged birth certificates to parents of newborn babies. The unabridged birth certificate contains the details of the child the mother, the father, and their identity and numbers. The Anna Bridge will be issued on the spot at no cost. The Department of Home Affairs. We care. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, I can't believe it's almost a year already since the last Cape Argus Pick and Pay Cycle Tour, but it actually is. And I'm joined once again this year by Dr. Basil Bonner, and he's the Chief Medical Officer for the tour. Dr. Bonner, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Corin. Thank you. It must feel like yesterday for you as well. Gosh, yeah, the year <laughs> does really fly by. It's hardly believable that we're there already. Now, the first thing that happens before the big day on the 10th is the Life Cycle Expo. And for those possibly who it's their first time or maybe they've forgotten because they haven't been for a while, what happens at the Expo? I think the Expo um, over the years has really grown in stature enormously because the Expo at one point was really just a registration contact with a little bit of um, a, a little bit of an expo thrown in on the side. It's now kind of become a registration contact with a lot of vital um, expo communication um, around cycling, around the goods and services involved with cycling, and then also around the health matters that are involved with cycling. Now that takes place from the seventh until from the seventh to the ninth, so just before the race itself. That's right. So that's the Thursday, Friday, and Saturday before the race. Now, this is where MediClinic comes to the fore because they have this very big screening initiative which is vital for the rest and for the riders. Yeah, you know, I think that um, where this has all emanated from is that over the years we had a significant morbidity um, associated with uh, cardiovascular disease because people who are relatively unfit and perhaps even a little unhealthy, riding a cycle tour is a challenge um, of some sort or another, life challenge or other, and then um, something goes horribly wrong. And uh, it kind of got us thinking that if we, if we knew what those risks were, we could perhaps prevent um, bad outcomes. Certainly that seems to be the case, but there's clearly no direct association. I think it's more just a question of 
making people more aware of the simple things that they can do to ensure um, that they have a healthy ride and uh, by um, in, inference a healthy lifestyle. Now when these checks are done at the expo, do you have you ever come across a case where you've recommended that somebody doesn't take part on the Sunday? Um, in the beginning that certainly was the case um, and we were a bit concerned that people might see that as a disincentive to present themselves for testing because they might be worried that we would then, you know, um, enforce them to withdraw from the race. Um, but yes, we have had um, over a number of years, we've had a number of cases that have been um, unfit to ride. One or two of them because they are actually carrying significant health risks, um, be they, um, you know, major sort of thyroid or thyrotoxic conditions, people with um, illnesses um, from flu-like illnesses and, and serious um, conditions that might cause problems to others that were sort of diabetic and uncontrolled um, and somewhat kind of blissfully unaware of the fact that their diabetes is really that bad, I guess in some sort of denial process. And obviously those are the kind of people that would not cope in a stressed environment like cycling in the heat or the wind etc with massive exertion so all this sort of thing is checked at the expo if you go for this medical screening that's right absolutely now the other nice thing is that all that information about your health state if you like is is loaded onto something called the race tech chip and all that information is in there so heaven forbid something happens to you along the way you fall off or you pass out or whatever could happen all that information is very easily accessible well, yes, the race chip technology has really developed enormously over the years. Um, and in fact, it's got to the point now where we are actually accurately able to track uh, where people with their race tech chip um, are on the route. It helps us to know, A, for example, if there is a problem anywhere, we can pick it up um, based on the screening of their chip, how far they've gone around the route, etc. Um, but also that data that's captured on the race tech chip is obviously available to us should we need to find or contact a particular cyclist. Um, so there's a lot of inf- valuable information that's contained on that chip. Now, people need to be aware of, I mean, if they're healthy and there's, there's no medical issues and they think it's, still, it's just going to be an absolute breeze of a race, there are still things to consider. There's the heat, there's the wind, there's cramping, there's all sorts of things that could potentially, hopefully you don't, but could potentially go wrong. And people, I think, just need to be aware of that before they set out. Sure, completely. I think that, um, you know, forewarned is forearmed. I think that uh, whichever way you look at it, unless you're one of the pro riders who's planning to do this in under three hours, uh, most people obviously are out there for a good number of hours, and I think one has to just take cognizance of the fact that, you know, the Cape weather um, throws everything at you. It really doesn't matter which year it is. In de- invariably, you're going to have some or other challenge. Very rarely do we get a perfect day. Um, also, things in the peninsula can change from one minute to the next. So we go prepared for absolutely anything and everything. Um, and so when things do crop up, we're not that surprised. And I think that's what the that's the attitude that the rider should take. They should prepare for that. They should prepare for you know the the weather inevitabilities, um, and then um, clearly prepare in terms psychologically. Rest enough at this stage of the day. They should be resting a lot more than they should be training. Um, and um, obviously, the training needs to have come you know in in good time uh, in preparation for the race. If you're under trained for this race, it's not the end of the world. I think the important thing is that you understand that you're not at your very best and therefore don't push yourself to the point where, you know, you, you, you might disadvantage yourself.
at what point should somebody realistically stop if they are at a certain point, either medically or they've injured themselves and they think, oh, well, I'll just get to the end. At what point should they really consider stopping? What are the sort of warning signs, if you like? Well, you know, I think that, I mean, if you have any adverse symptomatology, so for example, if you have really painful joints or painful, severely painful muscles, or you've got a headache or you've got chest pain or anything of that nature, pain's usually a very good indicator that you're probably overdoing it and that you ought to just scale down or stop completely. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is that if you're feeling unwell with it all, in other words, you either start slightly unwell and don't find that you can actually, you don't have the energy or the legs to carry you, or you become unwell on the route, you get dizzy, you get nauseous, any of those kinds of symptoms, it's imperative that people then um, stop along the way. And there are, fortunately, in this particular event, there are a number of water points that have mediclinic medical facilities um, where you can stop and have a nurse and or a doctor have a look at you and decide, you know, what the problem is and how serious it is or what significance there is attached to your symptoms. Sometimes it may just be something you've eaten or something that you've ingested, etc. Sometimes it's too much of, of sweet stuff. Um, and there are a whole host of different reasons that one can try and unpack. But I think the important thing is, if you're not feeling well, rather have it looked at um, than simply just push on and push on and push on regardless um, and, and then come unstuck. And there's no excuse that there won't be anybody to help you because do tell people how many how many emergency service workers and doctors and nurses are going to actually be out there. The numbers are actually staggering. Well, on the route itself, uh, there are about 25 doctors um, and um, about 80 nursing staff around the route. And that's a significant number. That's probably more than we can muster in the peninsula in the emergency departments. Um, but then we are looking after 40,000 cyclists. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and then obviously there are more than 100 emergency vehicles, each with their two staff members. Um, first aiders are out there, etc. So there's really a lot of help and support for riders, and I think that people should you know, not feel like they're out there on their own. I think it's 250 physiotherapists who will be very busy rubbing those sore muscles, I'm sure. You always see those on television is stopping and getting a, a good workout because they're cramping. Yeah, I think the physios are invariably every year in for an absolute baptism of fire. There's nothing that prepares them um, for that when it arrives on the day. I don't think they ever in their careers will ever see that many patients in one collective again. There's some very unusual um, emergency services that are going to be out there. I was looking through the list. There's the regular things like ER24 and the Metro Ambulance Services, the Paramedic Services, Medics in Motion, Volunteer Ambulance, Cape Medical Response, the HBC First Aiders. But then I get to this part, and I'm a bit confused. The National Sea Rescue Institute stations, three of those, the Institute of Maritime Medicine, and obviously the Disaster Management Team. Why would the National Sea Rescue and Institute of Maritime Medicine be out there? Well, I think that um, it's really just a, c- a question of uh, mastering the kinds of resources that we might need on the day. The input from National Sea Rescue is very valuable because they have a number of valuable individuals, people who are trained in the management of, A, emergencies and collective emergencies or major incidents, um, and, B, many of them are skilled first aid stroke, um, first, uh, you know, first aiders or, or medical personnel with levels of training. So the resources are really what we're using. And in the event um, of there being a major incident, the NSRI have bases along the coastline uh, where they could muster people and they could bring resources in if we needed to. So they're a valuable adjunct, um, and they're, again, volunteering and very willing and able. Um, The military or the Navy um, obviously have resources in Simonstown, um, and they have access to logistics.
supply lines if we would need that, uh, trucks, etc. Um, and uh, so they're very useful people to have on board. And I think that the whole idea of the cycle tour is to be as inclusive as possible, um, to get as many people involved as possible. This is a charity event, and people really enjoy being involved um, to be able to give back to the community um, and, and create the opportunities. As Chief Medical Officer, are you overseeing all of this? Uh, yes, I guess so. Gosh, well, yeah, I hope you have a really good rest the night before. It sounds like you're going to have a very busy day on the 10th. Yeah, you know, I think that the whole concept of a life cycle week has extended a day into nearly 10 mm. days now. So, um, you know, the kind of activation, once it starts, it's like a roller coaster. It just rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls until it culminates um, on, on day 10 in the cycle tour. Um, but, you know, it's all good, and I think that uh, we've got fairly used to rolling with the punches now, and I think we make sure that we have enough people on board and that the load is shared. And I think uh, all in all, um, it's a stressful day, but it's certainly very enjoyable. Well, if past cycle tours are anything to go by, they work extremely well. I mean, all this planning and preparation seems to just be spot on, and very few, if any, problems arise. So, Dr. Bonner, I wish you much joy and success with the next one on the 10th of March and um, I hope everything goes very smoothly and that we have good weather for a change Uh, but thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening great great pleasure thank you good night to you you too bye 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 Dr Basil Bonner is the Chief Medical Officer for the Cape Argus Pick and Pay Cycle Tour which will be taking place on Sunday the 10th of March and the Life Cycle Expo takes place as well from the 7th to the 9th of March and if you need more information on the tour or the expo you can take a look at the website it's www.cycletour.co.za Health Matters with Karen Key well, Annalise Smith is a registered dietitian with the Health Professions Council and Association of Dietetics in South Africa. And she says that the benefits of consuming omega-3s are absolutely immense. Omega-3 fatty acids are known to play a key role in brain development and brain functioning through all life stages. Annalise, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, good evening. It's one of those things I think that we pretty much we know we're supposed to be getting a lot of omega-3s but I don't think we're all that sure about where we're going to find them other than popping a pill but there are lots of easier actually more tasty ways of getting omega-3 than just popping an omega-3 pill yes popping a pull that uh, repeats on you all day and then mm. <laughs> and it's you know that's the sort of the lifestyle we lead you know oh we'll just we'll just pop a pull quickly it's much easier yes and it is easy and um, it's definitely better than nothing yeah but we, um, you know, we always try to encourage people to think about food, more about food, and that it's, you know, if you're going to eat something that contains omega-3, it's also going to give you other things. So um, we, we encourage people to, to eat things like bullshit, for instance, which is not always such a popular food, but we um, know that it's got a lot of other nutritional properties. Now, something like omega-3, it's not, as I mentioned, that it, it was really good for brain development and brain functioning, but it actually has been shown to reduce a lot of risks of all sorts of other things. Yes, I think um, omega-3 is um, an integral part of all every single cell membrane in our body needs enough omega-3 to function properly. So if you um, don't have enough omega-3, you are um, exposing yourself to a lot of risk, and we know that there's definitely a huge benefit to heart disease um, to, you know, to prevention of, of heart disease, cardiovascular disease, where, the, um, where it helps to um, make sure that your our body processes the fat properly to make it, to put it in a, a simple way, and also to keep the inflammation levels down, which is really what causes all these um, diseases and, and old age, 
and to keep the body the blood from clotting too much. Also, things like diabetes and stroke and cancer, it can actually, it can, what does it help protect you against these certain things? Or Yes, it does, because all these, the, the basis of all these illnesses is inflammation, and these, um, omega 3 is probably one of the most studied um, nutrients at the moment, and, and um, every single time they show that it decreases inflammation levels. So, inflammation is just the name for how our, our immune system completely overreacts. And then it causes, um, well, it's the basis, you know, that's what all these illnesses have in common, even things like osteoporosis, is the inflammation in the body. One of the things I was quite surprised when I was reading some information about pulchards is that they also are a good source of calcium. I would never have thought calcium. They are a very good source of calcium if you eat the bones. Oh, well, you do <laughs> when, you, when you're eating the pulchards yes. because they're all soft and mushy. They're not sort of bone bone that gets stuck in your throat. That's exactly. not that sort of bone. Exactly. Oh, so really? that's the only fish will probably ever eat the bone. Um, I, so that's, that's very good to, as good a source of dairy. Because um, when you think about calcium, you think milk and dairy products and cheese and that sort of thing. But you can actually get eat cal- uh, eat pulchers and get sort of the whole omega three thing, and yes. get the calcium sort of thrown in as well as an added bonus. Yes, exactly. Gosh, okay. And the calcium will also, you know, if you think of this protection against heart disease, the calcium is also plays a big role in um, the protect, you know protection against heart disease. So there again, it's better to get the whole food. And the osteoporosis as well, I'm sure. And osteoporosis. And, and like I said earlier, osteoporosis is also inflammatory disease. So if you get the omega-3 and the calcium with that, then that's already something that you're getting double bonus. Sure. Okay. Now, we're we mentioning the pulchards, but if, if people are sort of, you know, thinking what other fish can't keep just eating pulchards all the time, you can eat other fish as well. I mean, actually, the Heart and Stroke Foundation recommends that we eat fish at least two or three times a week. Yes. Um, but just, just, you know, I think... When I interview people, I see a lot of them would eat the, with the lighter fish, the white fish, and mm. even though that is very good for us and it's a very good source of lean protein, it doesn't have a lot of omega-3. So when you want to eat enough omega-3, and so if that when they say fish two to three times a week, um, we try and recommend dark fish or very or, or oily fish. So that would be poachers, and then the other oily fish would be salmon and mackerel, and um, we also have, you know, if you think of snook, or herring and those, they're also quite oily. What about sardines? I love sardines. Yes. Oh, we can eat sardines, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe if we're having fish twice a week, we should maybe we could, if we like the light fish, maybe have that once and have a darker fish the second time. Yes, yes. Oh. And, um, and it's, also, it's very simple to just open a can of poultry. You don't even have to prepare it and make a light dish, like a, a salad or a pasta dish, or um, it's quite easy to make fish cakes if you mix it with sweet potatoes. With sweet potatoes. Yeah, oh, it's delicious with sweet potatoes. Okay, that's something new now. I'm <laughs> learning something. A little bit of onion, some sweet potatoes, and some pulchards. Yes, yeah, so and you mash it all together, and you can either just eat it like that, or you can um, you can make it into little fish cakes. Oh, that's starting. I'm starting to think I should go home now and make some. It sounds really, <laughs> really delicious. And obviously, for um, with children, what is the level that they should be getting omega three as well? I mean, obviously, because it's it's for good brain development, you need to start giving it to children. But um, how much do you give them? Well, that's the thing. You know, children, we must remember that our bodies cannot make it. So if you, at any age, doesn't matter what age you are, if you don't get it from your diet, you're simply just not getting it because your body cannot make it. And a lot of problems with concentration and mental, um, you know, sort of um, memory problems and is, is often to do with omega-3 um, deficiencies in children. And they must also have, it's, I mean, obviously a little bit short, um, smaller portions for adults. We say 100 grams two to three times a week. 
So for children, I mean, they can have the 100 grams, but at least in 50 grams of pulches, so sort of half the um, adult size, but two to three times a week. Okay, because this is something you're going to have to get your children to eat, and it's not going to be all that easy. Yes. and Have you got any wonderful, nice suggestions, like those nice fish cakes you told me about? What well, about for the children? What can we do for them? Yeah, because, it, you know, because children often have a lot of tactile problems, mm. and they, they don't like those bits in the fish. It's very hard sometimes to convince them to eat that. Um, so definitely mushing it up and making it into like a fish pie or the fish cakes. You will still get all the nutrients. Nothing will be destroyed. Um as long as you don't, you know, sort of expose it to too high temperatures. I was going to ask you if you if you cook it, does it change the the value of it at all? If you if you heat it, if you deep fry it, that's not a good idea because you will start changing some of the properties of the oil. But if you, you know, obviously it's already cooked, so if you make it into fish, um, you know, the fish um, little fish cakes or pie, as long as you don't expose it to very high temperatures, um, so you just bake it in the oven, then it's fine. It doesn't it doesn't change structure. Gosh, okay, so this, this it's, it's relatively simple. I, I started off by saying, you know, we, we're looking for the easy way out here, you know, just pop a pull. <laughs> but if you're just going to open a can, I mean, it's just as easy as, as popping. Well, not as easy, but it's not that far off. It's not that difficult. And you're not going to have to stand in the kitchen for half, you know, hours cooking something. It's pretty much already made for you. Yes, exactly. And it's, um, you know, I, I see a lot of people starting to take it to work for lunch and just sort of, you know, there's quite a fishy smell. So you need to just mm, be um, <laughs> <laughs> You but might not be the most popular person in the office if you suddenly opened a lunchbox and out came the bullshit <laughs> smell. But, but it's good for you, you know. Yes, exactly. So maybe um, you could uh, encourage other people to eat it with you. <laughs> you, know, you sort of wonder, I often talk on the show about the fact that a lot more illnesses and diseases are coming to the fore and more and more people are being diagnosed with more and more things. And I often wonder if, that, if possibly there is sort of some sort of an environmental factor that is in play here whether it's that our lifestyle is just so completely different to you think back to the dark ages when mm. people were roaming around and and eating off the land and eating fresh and healthy things and everything we eat now is being processed or we're not getting all the enough nutrients from what we're eating yes no that's that's sure that's for sure and we that's what we do is we're trying to encourage people to go back to whole foods it's quite an interesting fact about the omega-3 to go back in history um, they were looking at, um, you know, the brain development, and there was a big um, sort of time in history when humans did start eating fish, how they, you know, the brain development accelerated. So, um, and then over time, we ate less and less and less fish, and then it became this whole thing about not eating any fat, so people started avoiding oily fish as well, because there was a whole time when people were avoiding all fat. So... Um, even now, I, when I interview people and they say, you know, I ask them, do you eat oily fish? They will start telling me, uh, like, they don't think I should, they should say yes. <laughs> well, it's it's like the whole debate of a couple of years ago about eggs. You know, we were told yes. you mustn't eat eggs, and now they're saying you should eat eggs because it's good for you. Yes, exactly. So that tap, eggs was a taboo for a long time, mm. and now um, they've now proven that eggs can be eaten, you can eat daily and nothing will happen to you. It's very confusing, you know, Anneli. Mm. It's very confusing. You know, oh. we're just the public out there, and we rely on people like yourselves and about like, all these people that do all the research and things. And But every time it's something else, you know, and you never quite know, well, I wasn't allowed to eat an egg yesterday, but now today I must eat the egg, you know. So we, we get very confused here with all this stuff. It, it is, and I think what the media plays a big role with that, in that as well, because sometimes, you know, there's maybe one study that's done and somebody gets hold of it in the media, and, and then it can get blown out of proportion. And I think I, I, the way I experience it, that's, when people ask for 
opinions that do go to people who are, you know, who will not give them a story. So I think that it's also changing that we, you know, people, because I think maybe because of the internet, people can Google it. Oh, you can't talk nonsense anymore. Although there is still a lot of... Sometimes it's a bit dangerous there. when you go and look at things on the internet. It's yeah. going to scare you half to death if you read some of that stuff on the yeah, internet. So <laughs> it's actually, um, it's actually quite a minefield out there and it's very hard if you're not if you don't know how to look at things and how to see what is true and what is not, you can sometimes become very confused. But what we need to know, bottom line, we need to have more omega-3 in our diet. Can we ever overdose on omega Can we ever eat too much or have too much omega-3? Sure. Um, I, I can't say I've ever seen anything being published or I'm, I might be that, that they're saying, oh, somebody had omega-3 toxicity. <laughs> I've never heard of that no, myself. No, never heard of it. We, we do look at the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6, and what sometimes happens is people hear omega-3 and they think they should also supplement omega-6, which is also an essential oil. But we haven't. We make that ourselves, though, don't we? We don't make omega-6. We make omega-9, but oh. omega-6 is, is abundant in our diet in terms of um, plant oils. Oh, right. So we don't so, really need to supplement the 6. No, yeah. So we, we just make, make sure we have some plant oils in our diet and don't maybe buy an expensive pool that's got some oil of, olive oil caps in the capsule, you know. <laughs> oh, right, because you're cooking with it anyway. Or it's somewhere <laughs> exactly. in your food. Okay, all right. But, so but that's the ratio between omega-3 and omega-6 needs to be in place. So we're saying that there should be a ratio of about um, 6 to 1, which, I mean, you're not going to work it out in your daily diet. But what we're saying is we already have enough omega-6. So if you start making sure you get more omega-3, you get the ratio right. Okay, so this is the bottom line. We need to eat lots more dark fish. At least two or three times a week we need to eat fish. And if you can't face eating dark fish every time, at least once or twice a week try and have something, even if it's just for lunch. You don't have to have it as your big dinner meal. You can have it for lunch. You can put off all the people in your office by taking it off (laughs) to work or make these fabulous fish cakes, Annalise says, with some sweet potato and some onion. And maybe you can even get the kids to eat that without moaning too much because, you know, make it fun, make it something that looks different. And more than likely they will eat it. So, Anneli, hopefully we, we've got that message out there that we need some more omega-3, and uh, the, one of the best sources of that is uh, pilchards. Yes. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining us, Thanks and both. hopefully people have, have taken this to heart, uh, literally, and um, have a healthy heart for eating some more pilchards and dark fish. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Good night to you. Good night. Anneli Smith is a registered dietitian with the Health Professions Council and Association of Dietetics in South Africa. If you'd like to take a look at her website, it's Smith. That's A-N-N-E-L-I-E. AnneliSmith.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. Or staying with dietitians, Teresa Harris is a pick-and-pay dietitian, and she joins us now to chat about nutrition guidelines, and specifically at this time for the Cape Argus pick-and-pay cycle tour. But these guidelines can be used throughout the year by anyone interested in keeping themselves nutritionally at their peak. Teresa, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, good evening. Thanks for having me. I'm just wondering what that humming noise I hope it's not going to disturb you. Can you hear it? I, I can hear you. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, Teresa, we've got the Argus coming up, as we like to call it, on the 10th of March. And um, people, it's now, we're heading up towards the end of our, well, not, I'm saying our, I'm not on the, doing the Argus. But for those people who are, we're heading up towards the end of their training time. What should they be doing nutrition-wise at this point now? They, they suddenly can't start now to try and get themselves nutritionally in peak form. Yeah, I agree. It is too late to start anything new. So the key things to focus on now would be getting plenty of rest, 
cutting back on that exercise but making sure that you're taking in the optimal diet. So what that diet would involve is just rehearsing your carbo loading. As we said, it's too late to start anything new, so you should have practiced carbo loading on your long weekend rides. Because you're going to be eating more carbs, it's a good idea to rather cut back on that fiber. It goes against the common um, guideline which we give, eat the high-fiber carbs. But if you eat too many high-fiber um, high carbs at this stage, it will cause some GI discomfort. Teresa, I'm going to ask you if you would mind just hanging up your phone. We're going to try and call you back. This humming is becoming really loud and it's sort of almost blocking you out. So if you don't mind just hanging up and we'll call you straight back and hopefully we'll have a better line. No problem. Thank you very much. Midday Live is your lunchtime news fix. We bring you 60 minutes of news around the globe. Follow the top stories of the hour. What measures are we putting in place to assist the teacher who now has to deal with children from a, a whole large cohort of abilities because our system isn't designed for that. I've seen people saying we're proposing pass one, pass all. They're saying that learners must fail and be promoted. It's not about that. It's an individualized support to say we'll rather have learners inside the school premises rather than have them outside. Join us between 12 and 1 weekdays and stay ahead of the pack. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Health Matters with Karen Key. Right, Theresa, hopefully we've got you on a better line now. Yes, is it better? Oh, gosh, there's no humming this time. Much, much better. We can hear you now. Right, right so you're okay. talking about the fibre and the, all that. Do you want to just carry on from where you were? For sure. I'm saying it is a time to just um, load up a bit on your carbohydrates, but try not to have too many high-fat carbohydrates. It may leave you feeling quite uncomfortable. And also very important to focus on making sure you're drinking enough fluids and um, practice your pre-race breakfast. If you've got one or two weekend rides left, uh, left before the race day, make sure that you've practiced having breakfast before you get on that bike. And um, then just practice taking in some snacks while you're busy cycling. So that's what we need to be looking at now. There's just over a week to go until the cycle race. And for those who don't normally do long-distance, well, I call them endurance because it is quite an enduring kind of ride, um, they would think you're a bit crazy saying practice having breakfast. But there is an art to this specific breakfast. Definitely. You know, there's so much happening on the morning of that race day. One's very anxious. You're quite pushed for time to make sure that you are there in time for your starting time. And um, the, the nerves do cause havoc with your tummy. So you need to make sure that you're confident with eating breakfast and that you've also found something that you enjoy and that works for you. It's vitally important that you do eat breakfast because it tops up your carbohydrate stores just before you begin the race. So make sure it's something you're familiar with and it's a food that you enjoy eating and your body can digest quite easily. And don't try eating something completely different on the day, on the morning. Yes, no, you, you will not only feel more nervous because it's something new, but your tummy may just start to cramp up and you'll feel quite uncomfortable soon into the race. So it can be something light like a porridge and with some diluted fruit juice that often works well for people. Um, and if you do enjoy some coffee, it's also a good idea to have some caffeine beforehand. Now, what about during the course of the race? I mean, what, what should people be stocking up on as they're riding? We know that carbohydrates are the main fuel for our muscles and for our brain. So carbs would definitely be what one needs to snack on. And I encourage people, please don't leave it too late into the race because if you leave it too late, your blood sugars will drop. So start 
about 30 to 40 minutes after you, you, you've started the event. So don't wait until you're too thirsty or too tired and hungry. And there it needs to be just nice, easy carb snacks, such as jelly babies or fruit like a banana. And the energy drinks, they also do count. So snack on carbs um, and start early into the race. And what about at the end of the race? Because now you've, you've exerted yourself and it's been exhausting and it's been, you've been out there in the hot sun or the wind or whatever Cape Town's weather is going to throw at you on the 10th. Um, what should you be, you be doing once you come in at the end? So you mentioned it's going to be hot. I agree. You no, need no, to no. replenish your... <laughs> I said, well, you know, with Cape Town weather, you never quite know. No, exactly. So it's very important to replenish your fluids. Make sure that you're drinking enough afterwards because we tend to put down the bike, say, well done, it's a race done, and you forget about replacing your, your fluids and your nutrition. So definitely drink something, drink lots of water, or drink energy drink, and make sure you're having the carbs with protein because that helps the body recover well. And do it within an hour, half an hour after finishing the race. So just a nice yogi sip, for example, that works quite well or have um, a protein supplement mixed with an energy drink. So it's just because you finished the race doesn't mean that your nutrition has not finished. You need to follow this through afterwards as well. Yeah. Exactly. You help your body recover and replenish all those lost stores. And following that, Teresa, like the following week, is there anything specific that they should be doing after the race for like a week or so? Um, it is a good idea to rest, so try not to overexert the body and get straight back into your training. But it's very important, no matter what level of exercise you do and whatever training you enjoy, make sure that you always follow a healthy diet. Because the more you do it, the more it becomes a habit and the easier it is. So it is important to stay on track with a healthy eating plan. So varied diet, low fat, lots of fluids, don't overdo the protein. All of that remains vitally important, even though you may just have achieved something great like the cycle tour. It's important that you still follow healthy eating principles. Now, people who do the cycle tour are also the types of people who throughout the year will be training, will be going to the gym. And just even those people possibly haven't done the Argus, but there are some people who enjoy training and enjoy gymming and they do it on a regular basis. Are there any specific guidelines for those people um, when the, because they are so physically active all the time? Yeah, it's a good point that they, they need to keep on track with a healthy eating plan. So the few aspects would be include fats in your diet, but just small amounts. And even though carbohydrates are permanently controversial, they're always at the sense of a diet discussion. They remain vitally important for exercise. So just make sure that you're choosing more the whole grain, high fiber starches. And um, fruit is a great snack to go for. Careful not to overdo the protein. There are so many protein supplements, powders and shakes out there. And the reality is you don't need to take in a protein supplement. You can get adequate protein by just eating the correct lean proteins in your diet. And we mentioned definitely control uh, your fluids, so drink lots of water. And just use alcohol sensibly because that can really pack on the kilograms and it dehydrates one terribly. So the things that people should definitely not be eating, are there any things that, pe that are definite no-nos when you're training? And I'm um, not just saying for the Argus, I mean in general. You know, I would say be careful of these supplements which are out there because there's quite, there's, there's very little evidence around 
certain, especially the protein powders and certain supplements like glutamine and ginseng and certain supplements like that, there's not enough evidence to prove that, that it will benefit you. So you're much better off focusing on good training, on the right nutritious diet, on getting a good strong mental attitude and adequate sleep. So rather focus on those which we know are tried and tested methods instead of these fad diets and supplements that are new on the market without any evidence. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, <clears throat> excuse me, when you first joined us this evening, I said you were a pick and pay dietitian, and pick and pay has a wonderful service called Ask a Dietitian. Do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about that? Yes, um, so I'm available to answer any nutrition-related query. You can either drop me an email on our website on that section, Ask a Dietitian, or you go on our customer care line and they'll transfer you. And I'm available to help you with either a sports query, like we've discussed, or diabetes, if you'd like to lose some weight. All of those nutrition queries, you're welcome to give me a call. And that you can just go onto the, is it the pickandpay.co.za, and there's a link there. I think it's the Lifestyle tab, and you just click under Health, that there's Ask a Dietitian. That's correct. So it's pnp.fair.za forward slash health corner. Um, or you can email me at healthhotline at pnp.co.za. Healthhotline at pnp.co.za. Yes. Okay, and that is it's a completely free service, and they can ask you anything about nutrition, about diets, about all sorts of things like that. That's correct. You know, I'll do my best in my capacity to help, but the reality is that everyone is an individual. So I do encourage people to consult with a private dietitian because there they will be able to get specific recommendation and guidelines that suits their lifestyle and it also helps with their, with their certain sports requirements because everyone has different requirements based on their body weight, based on their level of performance. So I'm there to help definitely, but unfortunately I give out more general guidelines. If you are a professional athlete or if you need specialized advice, then I'd recommend a private dietitian. But I can also put you in touch with someone with pleasure. Well, that's great. So you are sort of almost, for some people, almost the first line of defense, if you, if you like. If you don't quite know where else to go, you, you exactly. know, ask a dietitian and you can at least point them in the right direction. That's correct, yeah. Teresa, well, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Hopefully all those people riding the Argus are gearing up and ready and resting and doing whatever they need to do to have a wonderful race. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be waving at them from the side from the side. Of the <laughs> I'll enjoy that. It's an important place to be. Oh, I was listening to Dr. Dr. Bonner earlier who was saying, you know, the, the professional riders who take three hours, hopefully do a sub three um, time. You know, somebody asked me once how long I thought it would take me. I said, it'll take me about three. And they looked at me. I said, I'm talking three months. I'm not talking three <laughs> hours here. It'll take me about three months to do, the, to do the trip. No, I don't think I could do it in under three hours. That's for sure. Gosh, you're not coming down to ride. Um, no, no. Unfortunately, I, I do tend to enjoy the running more than the riding, but I admire those cyclists. It's um, a very brave event to take part in. It's a wonderful, cha- it's a charitable charity event, and I hope they raise lots and lots of money for the charities. But thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. It's a pleasure. Good night, Teresa. Teresa Harris is a pick and pair dietitian. If you'd like to find out more, you can take a look at the website. It's www.pickandpay.co.za forward slash health corner or you can email Teresa on health hotline at pnp.co.za health matters with Karen key
Well, a recently published study in the Journal of Sexual Medicine found a strong association between gum disease and erectile dysfunction, with more than half the men aged between 30 and 40 years who were suffering from erectile dysfunction also had chronic periodontitis. Now, Dr. Johan Lochner is a periodontist and president of the South African Society for Periodontics, and he joins me now. Dr. Lochner, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. This is quite an unusual finding. It's not something I would have expected. Yes, I must say it was quite interesting for me to read it the first time as well. I mean, there's been a lot of um, research in the last two decades um, looking at the association of cardiovascular disease and under systemic diseases with regard to general health. And this erectile dysfunction study comes on the back of the Cardiovascular Disease Association. Now, basically, what, what the problem here is, we're talking about periodontitis. Um, what exactly is that? Right. Periodontitis is an um, infection that uh, involves the supporting tissues of a patient's um, mouth. So that is the tissues um, supporting the teeth. That's your gums and the bone. And with periodontitis, there's not only um, breakdown or infection of the gums, but the bone is also deteriorating. So in uh, later stages of the disease, teeth can become loose, and then ultimately the teeth are lost as well. And I mean, people must obviously be aware that there's a problem. Now, this is, this is quite a big problem. Um, periodontitis is a silent killer of teeth. Oh. Often if you have caries or dental decay, then you have a toothache. But uh, periodontal problems is really difficult for the patient to, to find out that they have the problem. Sometimes they have bad breath. Sometimes they have bleeding gums. But often it takes a very long time for real pain to develop um, uh, due to the periodontal infection. And if the pain develops um, and the teeth becomes loose, and, and then it's often too late to save the teeth. It's like anything else. It's this whole early detection thing. So, yeah. it, as, I mean, I speak to dentists quite often on the show, mm. and the, one of the things they're always going on about is you need to go and get your teeth checked regularly. You need to do the <laughs> flossing thing. And this is the same with going to the doctor for your annual checkup for whatever else health condition you might have. It's the same thing. Yes, it's very important to see a dentist at least, uh, at least once a year. I mean, but it also depends on your risk category. Some patients can probably get away with not seeing a dentist for longer. But um, if you're in high-risk group, if you're a patient that smokes, if you're diabetic, and if you have other health-related problems, then it's a good idea to see the dentist regularly and also to see your hygienist regularly to have your teeth cleaned as well. Now, we talk, you mentioned bad breath earlier. Is that um, a side sort of thing that happens when you have periodontitis? Is that caused by the periodontitis? You know, bad breath can be caused by numerous things, but from an oral health point of view, uh, bad breath is often caused by bacteria that stagnates uh, around teeth where there's gum problems in these, as we refer to, pockets around the teeth when a patient has gum problems. And in those pockets live bad bacteria, and they create a lot of uh, bad smells or malodor, which is not very nice. Um, these bacteria also often sit on the tongue, so it's not always just from uh, periodontal problems that patients get bad breath, but also from uh, bacteria other, uh, elsewhere in the mouth. So what can people do about that? Is that just improving your oral health care? What, what else can you do? You know, if a, a periodont, if, if a patient has gingivitis, then by using a mouth rinse and cleaning the teeth properly and seeing your hygienist just for cleaning or your dentist for cleaning of the teeth, 
will definitely uh, help a lot in alleviating those symptoms. But for periodontitis, it's very important that the teeth are professionally cleaned. And it's not necessarily what you see with tartar that's visible in the mouth. It's, uh, it's often the bacteria that lives in the deep pockets around the teeth that needs to be professionally cleaned. And that can only be done by um, dentists, hygienists, and periodontists that specifically train to do these deep cleanings around teeth. Now, uh, so um, if you have periodontitis, by taking a tablet or mouth rinse or brushing your teeth or flossing your teeth won't get rid of the problem. You need professional help. Now, the sort of the chicken and the egg scenario here, it, it does the, is the periodontitis come first and then the erectile dysfunction? Or how does this actually work? And if you sort out the periodontitis, what are your chances of improving your erectile dysfunction problems? Yes, that other study came about, about the association with cardiovascular disease. And the problem with erectile dysfunction, it's also a blood vessel related mm. um, or often uh, organic blood vessel related problem. And the problem is that the, the blood vessel becomes obliterated with, with plaques, so the blood flow to the terminal blood vessels become reduced. Also, the reaction of the blood vessel itself with the little um, muscle attachments inside um, the, um, the penis blood vessels, they don't dilate as normal if there is cardiovascular disease or endothelial uh, dysfunction, in particular with a patient with periodontal problems. So the blood vessels don't react normally and hence the problem with erectile dysfunction. But uh, what was even more interesting for me is the study that's quoted often now is the, the study where there was an association between uh, erectile dysfunction and periodontal disease. But subsequently there's been an intervention study as well where they looked at um, patients who have erectile dysfunction and uh, had periodontal disease and they treated the periodontal disease group patients and that actually made the erectile dysfunction problems uh, better. So that is even more uh, interesting for me than the association study. So yet another reason to go to the dentist regularly. <laughs> Gosh, you, you'll have a cure. Not only I mean, to have a nice fresh breath, no. but um, well, maybe for better performance as well. Well, I mean, you'll have the dentist now. We'll be having cues outside the door now. <laughs> yes, that is quite worrying. I think one needs to be very responsible with this type of information. Mm. There is an association, but um, as they put it in the literature, the, it's not causal in nature. Yeah. So the bottom line is one needs to look after your health, not only the health of your mouth, not only the health of your teeth and your gums, but you need to look after yourself holistically. And um, if you have a healthy mouth, then I think you'll have a healthy lifestyle as well. Now, what are the, I mean, there's always these key points that people need to be aware of, the brushing your teeth twice a day. I think it's for two minutes each time. Is that correct? Yeah, well, that's, I, that's, that's, um, that would be very good to, to have that scenario, but most patients don't have the time for that. So yes, it, to brush your teeth in the morning and evening for two minutes would be great. But often we're too busy. Um, I think we need to make time at least once a day to brush the teeth, maybe for a little bit longer. But there's no doubt that your mouth feels nice and fresh in the morning when you wake up and you brush your teeth and you clean it properly. And then my worst thing is... <laughs> the flossing. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I haven't found a dentist or a periodontist or patient that loves flossing the no. teeth, although there's a couple of diehards. Um, there's no doubt that uh, brushing alone is not good enough to clean around your teeth because if you only brush the outside or the lip side and the inside or the tongue and the palate side of the teeth, you're pretty much only cleaning half the surfaces of the teeth. So you need to find a way to clean between your teeth. 
And for patients where the contacts between the teeth are still nice and tight, flossing is the way. But if there's little spaces between teeth, like you often find in older patients or older patients, or if there's been gum problems before, then you need to look at a little interdental brush or something like that to clean all the debris and plaque from the spaces between the teeth. Is that instead of flossing? That would be instead of flossing for patients that have spaces between their teeth. I always find people pulling their teeth apart now, saying, I'm sure, look, see the gaps. I don't need to floss. I can use this other well, thing. Well, if the teeth are that loose, then you probably have a gum problem or periodontal problem. I can't win here now. You know, I'm not making my life easy at all. Mm. Now, the other thing as well, what about brushing the tongue? That, that's been a relatively new thing. I haven't, I mean, back in the day, people never spoke about that. Yeah, brushing the tongue is important. I mean, if you, uh, and, and the key thing here is often patients gag when you, when you touch their tongue. It makes them rich. So if you do try to brush your tongue, and it's important, that's often a lot of um, bacteria that sit on the tongue, especially if, you're, if you had a, you can have a look yourself, if you had some red wine in the evening or you had a, a meal of a specific color, you can see that it stains the tongue. So when you brush your tongue, it's important to hold the tongue between your fingers and carefully hold it, and then you can pull it gently forward, and then you can brush the surface of the tongue. But carefully, one needs to use a soft brush, but there's also specific uh, brushing instruments available like tongue scrapers and so on to mm-hmm. remove the debris from the tongue. And then the, the great debate, is it the toothbrush or the electric toothbrush? Because I was told, someone said to me that you can actually get a better brush on your teeth with an electric toothbrush. Well, I, I hope to think that uh, a periodontist can brush his teeth better with a manual toothbrush well, than you, an electric toothbrush. But you see, but you know how to do this properly. Yes, we, professional toothbrush. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, it, it depends on the dexterity of the patient. There's no reason why a, a, a patient cannot uh, remove plaque from teeth sufficiently with a normal manual toothbrush. But if there is not um, effective plaque removal on all the surfaces that's reachable with a normal toothbrush with a manual brush, then an electric toothbrush really uh, has a massive, massive impact for that group of patients. And there's various different types of electric toothbrushes available, available, and the studies show that they remove plaque very, very, very well, indeed. And what about mouthwash? Is that good for us or not? A mouthwash, a mouthwash will not cure periodontal disease. It will help for gingivitis to a certain extent because the penetration depth of mouthwashes is not very deep around your teeth. You need to uh, really have spaces around the teeth for the mouthwash to penetrate in there. So um, a mouthwash will help a little bit with bleeding gums. It will help with halitosis or bad breath, but it will not cure, cure a gingivitis and it will not definitely not cure a, periodontal, a periodontitis. That is where professional help is, is necessary. But the bottom line, after all this sort of quite depressing stuff at one point, it is something that can be fixed. Yes. The key with periodontal problems is to detect it early. Prevention is better than cure. See your dentist regularly, and they must look for. Uh, the thing is, your dentist must look for a periodontal problem, um, and if it's not looked for, it can it can go undetected. And if it's detected very early, the outcome for periodontal treatment and treatment of mild and moderate um, variants of periodontal disease, the treatment outcome of those are excellent. But as soon as the problem becomes aggressive with a lot of uh, very deep pockets around the teeth, then it becomes more difficult. Uh, to get a long-term stable result for the patient. But again, it's not impossible. 
But as you say, it's, you know, it's, this, it's like going for a medical checkup. It's something we shouldn't be ignoring. You know, yes. it's because we only get one, well, if we get it's two sets. It's not a good idea to wait for your heart attack to happen before mm-hmm. you try to change your lifestyle. It's better to uh, be um, more um, uh, preventative mm. um, in nature, I would say. So we shouldn't wait for the teeth to start falling out before we no, go into the dentist. No, then it's a little bit too late. <laughs> <laughs> but um, again, I'm sure your, period, your local periodontist will be... Uh, able to help you with uh, in that regard as well. Give some nice implants or something, but you really don't want to have to go to that cost because I'm sure the medical aids don't pay for all of that, and it's not, and and it is quite a painful procedure if you need to have a lot of them done. Yeah, so. I think every tooth for a patient is key to keep as long as it can be kept without pain and health. I often see to pay, say to patients if they inquire about implants, I say you've got a, a set of natural implants in your mouth. And the best implants you can have are your own teeth that God gave you. So if you can maintain those, you've got a very, very large investment in your mouth that's worth a couple of hundred thousand rand right there for you. I think so the, keep it clean and, and keep them in there. I think the price you've just quoted is enough to make everybody dash off and go and stop brushing their teeth right now. <laughs> or to see the dentist or the hygienist. <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> Because, I mean, that is actually quite quite incredible price to have all those teeth done. And uh, mm. as I said, I don't think your medical aid is going to cover it. So if I were you, I'd brush your teeth, floss your teeth, go and see the dentist, go and see the oral hygienist. It's a lot cheaper in the long run. Definitely. And you've got a nice feel-good factor there as well. And remember, your oral health has an effect on your general well-being as well. If you feel good about your teeth, if your teeth are clean, um, then you have good self-esteem. You will have um, a nice, fresh breath as well. And... Socially, you will just feel better off than having teeth that's not looking good and a breath that maybe doesn't smell that nice either. So just to go back to how we started off the conversation, that there has been this, this linkage that has been spoken about now in this Journal of Sexual mm. Medicine between, peri- between chronic periodontitis and erectile dysfunction. It doesn't mean that that, that is the cause of it. Um, no, and it's, not. And we can't say that if you have the periodontist sorted out that it will make the erectile dysfunction better, but there is some evidence that there is possibly in some cases some improvement. So yeah, there's, there's various mutual risk factors when it comes to periodontal disease and erectile dysfunction. Um, the interesting thing with this study uh, was not the um, group of risk, uh, risk factors that was similar, but um, the fact that this was found in a, a patient group that was quite young, between the 30 and 40-year-olds. So to a large extent, they excluded the patients of age because age is one of the biggest risk factors for periodontal disease and erectile dysfunction. So uh, it was interesting to see that they found such a big correlation, over 53% um, of periodontitis uh, patients with the erectile dysfunction problem as well. Well, if you're having any concerns, I suggest you do go and see your dentist as soon as possible. Dr. Lochner, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. That's a pleasure, Karen. Good evening to you. Good night to you. Dr. Johan Lochner is a periodontist and president of the South African Society for Periodontics. Well, that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with time to travel. So join me then. If you need any information or any contact details about something you've heard on the show, you can have a look on the Facebook page. It's Health Matters on SAFM. Or if you'd like to email me, that's healthmatters at safm.co.za. Time for Stephen Kirk and I with some nighttime music.